A few years ago, as I was going through some old papers and photographs at home, I came across a letter that was written to, be, written to me by my godmother, Peggy Staten, on February the 12th, 1967, the day that I was baptized at the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Houston, Texas. This is a letter that I have reread over the years and something that I am so very thankful to have. Aunt Peggy, who was an aunt by choice rather than by blood, wrote to me the following. My dearest little Kelly Ann, this day you were made a member of the body of Christ. Right now, I'm sure you couldn't care less, which was true because I wasn't quite a month old. But as you grow in stature and grace, I know that you will grow in awareness of the significance of being in Christ and Christ being in you. Of the many wonderful things my parents did for me as a child, choosing Aunt Peggy to be my godparent was one of the best. If you want to show what a model godparent might look like, she can be held up as the ideal. Not only did she agree to be a godparent and write these beautiful words on the day of my baptism, words filled with sure and certain confidence in the lifelong relationship that would come from baptism, but most importantly, she lived each and every day focused on being faithful, loving, generous, and supportive in all that she did. From early on, I considered Aunt Peggy to be the holiest person I knew, because it seemed to me that she embodied much of what I understood a faithful person should be. As I got older, I began to appreciate that I was not the only person she made feel special, loved, and cared for. Although she had made specific promises as my godparent, they were an extension of how she treated everyone. And so many people were able to experience through her what being in Christ and Christ being in you meant and the incredible life-giving significance of that ongoing relationship. I am forever grateful for Peggy's faithful, holy witness and for the holy relationship that began on that February day. Baptism fills our readings this morning. The first Sunday after Epiphany is also the day the church recognizes as the baptism of our Lord. We hear about Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And we also hear about an encounter between Paul and the disciples of John from Acts where baptism is discussed. In both of these passages, baptism is a central topic. And these texts and others have been used over the years to shape what baptism looks like in different churches and different denominations. If you are someone like I have who has grown up in the same denomination, then you might have particular ideas about baptism that you consider to be correct or proper or right, or just take for granted that baptisms are done in one particular way. If you have been part of different denominations, you have likely seen a variety of ways to baptize or contrasting rules and guidelines about who can be baptized, who can do the baptizing, 
and how and where the baptism occurs. There can be strong opinions about whether infant baptism is appropriate, whether baptism needs to be full immersion in a river or a baptismal pool, or whether pouring or sprinkling water is acceptable, whether someone can be baptized only once or can be baptized again if desired, or whether only designated clergy can baptize or if it can be done by anyone. There are many differing views on what valid baptism is, and these opinions can be tightly held, and discussions about the differences can sometimes become very heated. As someone who is a rule follower by nature, who strives to do things properly and correctly, who has grown up in the Episcopal Church and has made promises as an ordained person in this denomination, I readily abide by all of the approved baptismal practices set forth by this church. But full disclosure, I couldn't care less about most of the discussions and debates surrounding the mechanics and logistics of baptism. This absolutely doesn't mean that I don't think baptism is a centrally important part of being a follower of Jesus. But to me, what too often gets lost in these debates is what we might be inclined to overlook in today's readings. And that is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit promised in the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit present in the water. The power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the baptized followers of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think the Holy Spirit is as present in a single drop of water as in the water of an entire ocean. And the Spirit's power can be as active in the life of a tiny baby as it can be in someone of advanced years. Reading and praying through the Bible and discerning how it guides our lives and shapes our relationship with God is valuable. And wrestling individually and communally with how we act in response, it's an ongoing process. But it should not simply be an academic exercise, only concerned on figuring out what is proper or correct. Because in doing this, I think we risk, whether we realize it or not, becoming like the disciples of John that Paul meets. People who are identified as believers, but who admit they don't know the Holy Spirit. This week, when I read John's disciples' answers to Paul, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. My first response to this was, are you kidding me? Weren't you listening? How did that message get lost? These are people who identify as being baptized into John's baptism, and John is the person in all four Gospels who talks about Jesus as he baptizes people and tells them Jesus is coming and will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This seems like a centrally important point that these believers have completely missed. How can that be? What has happened that even the existence of the Holy Spirit is unknown by people of faith? 
Why is the knowledge of the Holy Spirit so quickly lost? I suggest that part of this reason is that the Holy Spirit makes people uncomfortable. In the other three gospel texts, when John speaks of the baptism of Jesus that is to come, he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire can be a scary word. We like our fires controlled and contained in a cozy fireplace, in a flickering candle. But the fire of the Holy Spirit is anything but controlled. The promise of the fire of the Holy Spirit is wild and consuming, with the potential to transform us in ways we might prefer to remain the same. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, anything might happen. We might speak in tongues. We might prophesy. We might welcome strangers. We might feed the hungry. We might pe visit people in prison. We might put less of our energy into taking care of our own well-being and focus on the well-being of others. We might love the people we would prefer to avoid or ignore. We might pay attention to the needs and concerns of those who are different from us and extend kindness and care. We might continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. We might persevere in resisting evil and when we sin, repent and return to the Lord. We might proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ. We might seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And we may strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. All of these possibilities can be a little bit scary. And some of them include things we'd probably prefer not to do. But to live fully into the baptism of Jesus is to know and be known by the unpredictable, uncomfortable, powerful, transformational Holy Spirit, taking us to unexpected places, loving, unlikely people, changing our own lives in unimagined ways. As is acknowledged during baptism, being part of this is not easy, but it is not something that we have to do alone. We do this in community, and we do this with God's ever-present help. So on this day of Jesus' baptism, let us rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit, and let us pray as we do at baptisms, Sustain us, O Lord, in your Holy Spirit. Give us inquiring and discerning hearts, the courage to will and to persevere, a spirit to know and to love you, and the gift of joy and wonder in all your works.
Amen.